Matt is back. On today's Golazzo, we round up all the latest news. And for our slice of calcio culture, we go back to the 80s, mateys, for the most surprising Italian title winners ever. My Verona. School's in session and it's back to summer 1984 as Against All Odds cements the global popularity of smooth cranium crooner Phil Collins. In Italy, one of the greatest tales of beating the odds that the Campionato's ever seen is about to get underway. The story of Hellas Verona, champions in the 84-85 season. Gabriele Marcotti's here with us, James Horncastle as well. Gabriele, is it fair to say that this is your favourite ever season of Italian football? I think in many ways it was a season that everything came together. Back then you had a limit of, of two foreigners per team, as, as most people know. I think that season, pound for pound, the foreigners in Serie A were probably as good as have been assembled in a single league anywhere in the history of football. We'll list them very, very shortly. And, and the fact that Verona, with 17 players, a squad of 17 players, were able... To defeat all of them is something that's quite extraordinary. We'll, we'll also look at maybe some of the reasons why that happened that particular season later on. James Horncastle, your parents were barely born uh, when this <laughs> season took place. But yet, you know, anyone who spent time in and around Italian football, you, you can't move for bumping into the legend, the miracolo of, of, of Verona. Yeah, I actually got to spend some time five or six years ago now with the mastermind of this, Osvaldo Bagnoli, who is... A pensioner uh, who lives a very simple life, not too far away from the Stadio Bentegodi. Hmm. Um, you know, who I think a lot of people who live in in that neck of the woods obviously know, but would see him cycling or taking his his daughter to to work in his sort of old banged out Fiat. He had successful spells at Genoa and then at Inter uh, afterwards, but uh, chose to return to Verona. Yeah, um, and he, he left the game quite early, really. Um, he was he was 58 uh, when he got sacked by Inter and didn't really feel there was a place for him in the modern 90s game, which was... He, I think, was quite offended that he was made out to be a bit of a dinosaur, I think, at a time when Saki was obviously changing the game and he, he was made out to be an old-fashioned Italian manager, even though... I remember him telling me he always had a libero who would step out from the back in Trichella, play the ball. He always had three attacking players in that team. But, um, yeah, went home to his wife that day and she said, what's happening? He said, it's over forever. All right. Well, let's go back then to Bagnoli's greatest ever season, the season of Hellas Verona, the season of Schulis Prebenelkia, the season of 84-85. That's right, listener, it is summer 1984 and as Tarzan Boy by Milanese Italo disco outfit Baltimora conquered charts the world over. Back in Italy, the big talk was centred not in Verona, 
not at the Bentegodi, but way down south at the San Paolo in Naples, where Diego Maradona had become the latest and greatest star to join Serie A. Now, Gab, you mentioned the extraordinary concentration of world talent back then. Do you want to list some of the names that were in Serie A at the time? Diego at Napoli. Zico Udinese. Zico Udinese. Guy named Michel Platini. And Zibi Bonniac at Juventus. Falcao at Roma. Rummenigge, Passarella, Liam Brady at Inter. Sunes and Francis at Sampdoria. Socrates at Fiorentina. Socrates. <laughs> and how, how about this one? Michael Laudrup at Lazio. Yeah. Bang. Lazio side that went down that year. That's incredible. <laughs> now, as you mentioned, at the time you can only have two foreign players per side. That was the rule. But not to worry, because the Italians were pretty good as well. They'd just gone and won the World Cup a couple of seasons before. So you had the likes of Zoff, Gentili, Cabrini, Sherea, Paolo Rossi, Conti, Tardelli, Graziani, all plying their trade up and down. A young Viali and Mancini. Damn, yeah. Yeah, and this was the year that Viali went to Sampdoria as well. Whereas, yeah. Hellas Verona had who? I mean, this is quite interesting. I mean, if we want to talk about the two foreigners that they had, right. you have um, Hans-Peter Briegel, who'd been part of the... West Germany side that had won the Euros in 1980 and played Italy in the final at the Bernabeu in 1982. And then you had uh, Preben Elkia. Right. Crazy horse. Yes. In my youth, at that age, I was a little boy living in Tokyo. This was no internet, very little football on television. So you watch these things called VHS cassette tapes. And I've, <laughs> I have one of... The story of the 1984-85 season. I think I must have watched it at least, my conservative estimate, 12 to 15,000 times. So I basically remember everything that happened that season. That was in the video. Um, and what struck you <laughs> about Briegel was that when he arrived, he had these enormous legs. Maybe he wore shin pads, but if he did, they were sort of tiny John Terry-sized shin pads. And... He came in and he was, and in Germany, they viewed him as sort of just some kind of, you know, physical freak who ran around. Well, you say that, Gab, because he was a decathlete who didn't actually start playing right? football until he was 17. He could won the 100 meters in 10.5 seconds. Wow. He scored a lot of goals this season he as did. well. Yeah, he was their second top scorer. Yeah. He scored more than Elkir, in fact. Mm. But Elkir scored better ones. Right, including one of the most famous goals in Italian football, the probably. The Cinderella goal, because right. he loses his shoe. Exactly. All right, well, you, we'll get onto that very shortly, I should think. So you had the, the two foreigners who I think had caught their eye at the European Championships that summer in, in, in France, and Verona brought them in. The rest of the team, is it fair to say the likes of Nanu Galderizi and, and uh, the keeper, who I'd, I'd forgotten entirely about, Claudio Garella, who was famous for using his feet. What an outlandish concept. He was, or Garelic, as they as they called him. Because, and like Diabolique. Or like Diabolique, yeah. He, uh, Diabolique, a famous cartoon cat burglar. He was one of those guys who stylistically, as you know, goalkeeping nerds will tell you, that like nothing he does is orthodox. He just kind of throw a bit of his body in front of the ball and, he, and he'd get to it every time. We should point out that Verona had finished, was it fourth the previous year? Yeah. Uh, oh, so, no, sixth the previous sixth, year. But the, so they came up from Serie B in 1981 and immediately finished fourth under Osvaldo Bagnoli. His first season in charge was the season they won the Serie B title. And also, he got them up. Um, you look at the teams that were in Serie B that year. Uh, there was Lazio and Milan who'd been relegated as part of the Totonero scandal. Mm. And there were the two Genoa clubs, Genoa and Sampdoria. So, wow. I mean, that's, that's quite a feat in itself. That team had a lot of players who, with hindsight, I don't know how gifted they were, but Italian football thought that they were gifted. So 
you know, you mentioned there Calderisi, who, you know, he's sort of a, a little little small striker Nano. who, you know, and known as Nano, which means midget. Midget, yeah. <laughs> it's not very PC for him, but small person. Um, even though he wasn't even that small, but he uh, he scored a lot of goals. And he he would then go on to, to of course, play for Italy. Not very well, but he did play for Italy. Uh, they had this midfielder named Antonio Di Gennaro, who was a kind of regista that, again, I don't think would exist in the modern game because he was the kind of guy who could really pass, but sort of moved at two miles an hour. And at the back, back then they played with two markers and a sweeper. They had Roberto Tricella, who's another guy who then he would go on, move to Juventus. You know, he's the kind of sort of slow central defender who could go and hit a long pass. And in the modern game with the offside trap and whatever, it doesn't really work anymore. It didn't really work for him at Juventus. But another Italian international, as was, by the way, Pietro Fanna, who mm. that was maybe the guy who he came through the ranks at Juve, ended up at, at Verona. He wasn't considered too much, but he was a winger. He was sort of bald by the time he was 20. Like and, James. Yeah, no. even before, 13. <laughs> but, um... He's another one of those guys who right. then people thought was going to be really good and then didn't quite make the Do you know who else they had before they got the, the, the Scudetto winning side together? Joe Jordan. Joe Jordan, Lo Squalo. Yeah. yeah, had a, a season there, not a desperate season. I think he scored two goals all campaign mm. after but his essentially, uh, exploits at Milan. All of these players that mm. Gabs just mentioned were kind of rejects who'd been on Cast the... Cast-offs. They'd been on the margins of these top sides, a little bit like Bagnoli himself, who, who came through at uh, Milan, the side with Liedholm, Scafino... He won titles with them, but he never felt they were his own. Mm. And you know, when he starts managing, he essentially assembles a, a team full of players a bit like him. People of the Totally Football Shows, you know what you could be listening to right here? You, your company, your product out here in front of hundreds and thousands of listeners who are mostly men between the ages of 25 and 44. As well as the twice-weekly Totally Football Show, we've got a network of other football shows. There's Galazzo for the discerning cosmopolitan listener. There's the Totally Football League show for the loyal hardy listener. And there's the Totally Scottish Football show for your listener who likes those big square sausages. And we've got even more podcasts on the way in 2019. Some of them not even based around football or indeed sport. To discuss advertising on one of the Totally Football shows or across the Muddy Knees Media Network, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. We reach well over a million pairs of ears each week, and now you can too. Email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. The season begins with, of all teams, Maradona's Napoli. Ay, 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 ay. And what does Diego Maradona do in this game? Nothing. He gets breagled. He gets breagled. Yeah. And Maradona, for those who, who forget, this is the year that, of course, he derived in the helicopter and everything. And also, they had this extremely athletic, I mean, couldn't play football, but he was very athletic center half named, uh, named Fontolan. And normally, you figure, if you're going to manmark Maradona and everybody manmarks, you're going to manmark him with a smaller guy. Mind your memory of this is the times that Fontolan would, would move away from the Napoli striker who was either Pellegrini or Diaz back then, probably Ramon Diaz. I think guessing. it was Ramon Diaz. And the two would just go and just road grade Maradona. Um, but Brigo... what? What's the verb there? Road grade. <laughs> okay. Like I think I get the sense Latin. of Latin. Asfaltare. Yeah, okay. Asfaltare. There okay. you go. Very nice. A 3-1 win for uh, Verona. 
Same scoreline they came up with in the second game at Ascoli. They then did Udinese. They had a nil-nil draw with Inter, who were among the favourites for the, the title that year. And then, Gab, I'm guessing that one of the highlights for you, maybe, of, of, of this campaign was the Week 5 clash when Juventus, who'd won three of the previous four Scudettos... They'd beaten who, them in the Coppa Italia final as well. In right. One, one of the two that they played um, under Bagnoli. Because this is the thing, Bagnoli and his Verona players say, we were building towards this. We Obviously, we were massive outsiders. No one tipped us for the title. But we knew we were quite a decent side. We finished fourth, sixth. We'd been to two Coppa Italia finals where we'd lost to the two preeminent teams of that era, Roma and Juventus. And, yeah, could mix it. And this game, the Juventus one at the Bentegodi, is, yeah, I'd say one of the most memorable in the club's entire history, let alone that season. Right. Two goals. The second one is, the, as you say, the Cinderella goal. Tell us more. So what Elkiar picks it up essentially sort of um, just inside Juventus's half, scarpers down the sort of uh, left-hand side. Without, and then and loses a scarf. Loses, loses his boot very early on in the actual move um, before, you know, sort of... I think it's a challenge from Pioli, Stefano Pioli. Mm, yeah, and, uh, and manages to hold it off and, and, and finish. And With the, his stockinged foot. Exactly, and kills kills the game. Um, that was the second second goal in a 2-0 win. Um yeah. Oh, Stefano Tacconi. Mm. Wow, Gabriele. The man who saved the moon. I'm sorry? Stefano Tacconi. How did he save the moon? He wrote a book and then was just made it into a film. Oh, really? O Parato la Luna. I saved the moon. What does that mean? <laughs> you need to ask him. <laughs> okay. He's one interesting dude. He is, isn't he? I had a chance to meet him once, actually. You didn't ask him about that. Was it no, at the I film premiere? <laughs> Sadly not. Wow. I'm. Um, put into perspective how big that was. A Juve team who later that season, or at the end of that season, would become European champions amid the, the, the horrors of Heisel. And who, I think, it was around that time that they also, or maybe shortly thereafter, they played Liverpool in the uh, European Super Cup, which back then wasn't a curtain raiser, but they played it during the year. Mm. They'd Obviously, they had won, the year before, Liverpool had won the European Cup, beating Rome on penalties, and Juve had, uh, had won the, the Cup Winners' Cup. You've excuses. Oh, well, all our focus was, of course, on the cup and winning the, you know, but it was it was a really big deal, right? At that point, and I think while the big joke with Bagnoli and and in my video he repeats it almost like every week, like it's like, oh yeah, well we're counting the points now to uh, to survival. Uh, to survival, you know, ha ha ha, the Salvets, all the stuff, but really at that point and he's being he's trying to be clever about it he's trying to keep them humble and grounded and whatever but he knew it was all gravy and he knew at that point that he looked around and you know Juve were having issues and Roma had Svenja and Eriksson Roma yeah well and Falcao Falcao'd gone but there were certainly issues Inter couldn't find a, a, a shape or they couldn't settle on a, a team uh, Milan were on their way back from Calciascomessi so I suppose I mean the comparison Leicester, no? Is Leicester in mm. and what Claudio Ranieri said is like you need not just one big, two big, three big teams to 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 have an off season, if you like. But I still don't think that detracts in any way from what Verona achieved. Also because um you look at the, the region, um no one had won anything in, in the Veneto, even though the Veneto is what? Italy's largest region, one of the richest after mm. Lombardy. And aside from that you have uh, Venezia had won the Coppa Italia in the 1940s with Valentino Mazzolo and Ezio Loic. In the late 70s, you had Vicenza, who went on that incredible run and finished second. second with Paolo Rossi, who'd scored 24 goals. But no one uh, had and no one has since done what 
Verona did in in, uh, in that region. So, yeah. What were your other highlights from the season? A season which, in which they didn't lose a game until January. So I remember some crazy game where Michel Platini had started the season slowly, and he was getting criticised. People were starting to wonder, you know, has he lost it? And of course, he'd finished the season as as top scorer and, and, won the and win the Ballon d'Or. You know he was second that year, by the way. Elkia. Yeah. Yeah. Extraordinary. Uh, but but also, but I mean, that that was also a reflection of what Italian football was at the time. You know, everybody everybody was focused on it. Uh, I know it might not have been on Channel 4 yet here in England, but in the rest of the world, it was kind of a big deal. Tokyo. Well, it wasn't um, on in Tokyo either, to be it, fair. It was, actually. Were you there for that called? Intercontinental Cup where Platini scores the greatest goal ever not, to be disallowed? Not only was I there, I was at the training session uh, uh, the day before. I remember... Platini scoring that goal. I remember Platini not signing any any autographs okay. and having sort of he had this big overcoat and he cut. How old were you at the time? It was twelve. Um, That's yeah. amazing. People stopped and you know and and, and, and signed autographs and, and Trapattoni invited us in because Trapattoni, of course, is from Cusano Milanino, which is where my family is from. Short walk from um, exactly short walk from Abovisa. Yeah, and the, the incredible thing about Platini, and you can still see this on YouTube, is he scores that amazing goal. It gets disallowed for for dangerous play, and afterwards he goes and he just lies down on the pitch with his elbow, just like with his grin on his face, like sort of marveling at the the, uh, the absurdity of it all. But yeah, going back, you asked me one of the highlights where this, but mm. he was getting a lot of criticism, so he decided that he wasn't going to say anything. He didn't say anything pregame. He played in some game where I think he scored two goals and he delivered this sort of stupid back heel. Assist and they won four nil or four one and and uh, and he walked off the pitch and he said he wouldn't say anything other than the fact that you know something like you know that's for the critics up to you now Some, something like that you know and this, this is sort of sort of like peak Platini peak sort of some would say arrogance was that the Galeazzi. Yeah, Michel. Was it? Was it? Who was the the, the, the burly interviewer, a former Olympic rower who'd become an interviewer for uh, for Rai, the state television? Was it Juve Atalanta five one? Would that have been it? Yes, I, th- I think that, that that might have been it. With Benevelli, I think anyway, filling in goal. So, for but anyway, our friends at Verona uh, hadn't haven't lost a single game. But as the second half of the season gets underway in January. Inter have finally pulled level with them, which I think you know, whatever Bagnoli thinks about it, whatever his players think about what might be happening, I think it was taken by the press as the dream is over. Here the fairy tale ends. But instead of letting that get to them, Verona then produced one of their most extraordinary performances. They had a trip to Zico's Udinese uh, where they, ah, yeah. they they stormed it. They were Well, they were 3-0 up and then uh, Udinese came back and it was 3-3. And just when you thought, oh, Verona are going to panic here... Within two minutes, they were five through up again, and they just completely saw saw them off. And this is the extraordinary thing about this season that that Verona had, is that they led the league from start to, to finish. finish. Even though you, you said that Inter basically drew level on points with them and looked like they were going to challenge, a few weeks later it was Gigi Radice and Aldo Serena's Torino. Who all of a sudden, looked like they were going to be the ones to push through, and they held them off as well. And just completely threw it out with what a couple of games to spare. So. Right, twelfth of May, penultimate round of the season. They're in Bergamo, taking on Atalanta, needing a point. Atalanta are already mathematically safe, nothing to play for really. The stadium, Atletico Azzurri d'Italia, is full of uh, bouteille. Is that pronounced right? The 
If you go to the Benthicoli, there is a monument to the Boutet, the, uh, the Verona Ultras. There we are. It's the penultimate day of the season, and that roar you can hear is Atalanta 1-0 up at home to Verona. Perico, uh, who hadn't scored in 10 years. Suddenly in the top became five. Pericoloso. <laughs> yeah, nice. But, of course, five minutes into the second half, who should collect a loose ball in the box but Pribanelkia and Hellas are champions. The aforementioned Galeazzi there interviewing Osvaldo Bagnoli. That was the only time he, he smiled all season, according to one of his players afterwards. What I like about Bagnoli, another anecdote that the players tell, was that um, when it came to match day, um, usually hearing these sort of stories about sort of fairy tale um, title wins, that um, you know the manager sort of had these great team talks and uh, come up with these imaginative tactical schemes, and yet on match day he apparently would just sit in the corner of the dressing room reading La Gazzetta della Sport. Um, and said, come on, we did all the work in the week. You know That's, what to do. It's Atalanta. <laughs> it's Atalanta. And they would go out and just execute, you know. The thing about Atalanta is, I mean, you mentioned that, that they were safe. They've been newly promoted. Two of the teams with the most important sort of historically ultras groups. I think that season, there were a couple of themes running throughout. One, and this was one of the times that Bagnoli really, really lost his cool and really started isolating uh, Verona was, there were a couple of games where Garella made a, made a, a bunch of saves. I think it was against the, in the Napoli game, actually. And it was presented as if, like, Garella saves Verona, blah, blah, blah. Oh, Garella's taking Verona. And sort of the novelty of having this little team, people started getting annoyed, right? The big club. They, 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 they were very good at developing this siege mentality. And, um, and he famously, with... Uh, with a radio, is a legendary Italian radio presenter named uh, Enrico Ameri. He absolutely lost it. And he just kind of came out and said, look, you know, we may not be a historically big club, but we're not in first place just because of Garella. He's one of many. In fact, some of the saves that you laud to high heaven, a, a goalkeeper has to be asleep to go and let, 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 the, let the goal in. Mm. But what it created was a sense among a lot of the smaller clubs, like Atalanta and their fans, a certain admiration where they almost got behind Verona that season. The provincial team that could. Yeah. But let's get on to the other thing, because they are the only provincial side in the history of Italian football since a unified national top division was instituted in 1929. The only time that a team that's not from one of the kind of regional capitals, Turin, Rome, Milan, or Genoa, or Florence, actually won the title. By coincidence, this was the only season that referees for Serie A matches were randomly assigned their matches. This had been instituted, I think, Gabriele, after, after the betting scandal of Calcio Messi as a way of trying to clean up the image of, of the Italian game. And at the end of that season, with this experiment in place, the top four was Verona, Torino, Inter, Samp, which is kind of unusual. Yeah, amazing how that works. I mean, there's, um, a, there's an interesting story from the, the second round of the European Cup, 
the when obviously Verona going in as Italian champions, they were drawn against Juventus in in uh, in that game, who were the champions of Europe, and um, I think they they lost was it at the Comunale, and um, one of the Verona players broke a window in the dressing room, and the police came in, and Bagnoli said, "If you're looking for thieves, they're in the other dressing room." Damn. That's a recurring theme in Italian right. football, but you tell know. you what, they've still got to go to the Bentegodi and get something. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but I think there really was sort of a sense because remember too, what we mentioned before about you know the the, the spending and and the foreigners that came in. Um, I remember one argument that was made by uh, by Boniperti, the Juve president, saying. But because we have this limit on foreigners, yeah, we may be richer, but it's not really fair because we can only buy two good foreigners and there's more than two good foreigners out there. And so the little teams go and buy the other good foreigners and that's not fair because otherwise we would buy them. How did you feel about that, Gab? <laughs> I was kind of like, all right, you know, just, why don't you just come out and say it then, right. you know? And, and in wow. fact, uh, was it the year after that? that they, you know, added a third foreigner. Right. And they, we had the three foreigner rule, and then 10 years later, Bosman came. And this is this is the great thing that, as Bonipati was making this argument, this was, what, the beginning of, of a very bleak run for Juve. Mm. They went nine years, was it nine years well, no, without a title? They won the title the year after. Ah, okay. In, but that was sort of like the last hurrah before the Lipiera. Mm. And the year after, when they won the title, coincides with, I think, one of the most incredible collapses in in the history of Italian football, which was Lecce, Roma. Ah, Sven. I call Fini della Realtà, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, it's really... Yeah. In, but that's a story when they entered the, the time, that's a story for another that's, time. That's a story but that for was... a special Sven Galazzo, which is surely only weeks away. Much loved figure there, and one who's furnished us with all sorts of stories. But anyway, that was Hellas Verona and their greatest season ever, and one of... Italian football's finest campaigns. After this, let's just catch up on what's happened to them since. Giallo Blue Army is arriving. Title of that little number. And it's not been going particularly well since they won the Italian title. Within five years, they'd gone down. Not long after that, they went bankrupt in 1991. Since then, they've gone as far down as Chiuno, the third division, almost went down into the fourth. They've come up sometimes, 2002. You remember the team they had in 2002? With Mutu, Camoranesi, Giladino, Massimo Odo. Manager was Alberto Malassani. Vintage yeah, times. Who went under the Cordova uh, when they beat Chievo in the, in the derby. That's fantastic. Yeah. Check that out on YouTube. It's amazing. Still one of the greatest men in the history Malisani. of the universe. Okay, yes. well, obviously, we've got Malisani Golazzo coming up as well. Focusing on the photocopier years, I presume. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, but, yeah, a lot of yo-yoing up and down between a city A and city of B. 15, 16 season, they didn't win a single match until hey, February. Hey, we should, we should. Wait. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Luca Tony. Luca Tony Capocannonieri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we did all that in the Luca Tony space. We should also mention. Don't gloss yeah. over it. Well, I think one of the reasons is that even though they did have bursts of success, the big story in Verona 
since the turn of the millennium has been the the fabulous Pandoro making. The big story in Verona, <laughs> as ever, is Romeo and Juliet, right. is the lake, is right. the... Um, and, and if you like, Capulets arena. to Verona's Montagues uh, have been Chievo, who've, who've kind of won the hearts of fans. And, <laughs> and it's everywhere. Chievo, who uh, last week had their appeal uh, for that three-point penalty. Um, they wanted it, obviously, overturned. No, right. It still stands. So. There's still bottom of the pile mm-hmm. and who knows maybe next season they'll be having derbies again with Verona because Verona are currently down in Sidia B but they're hoping that they're going to be back up in the top flight next uh, next time they're currently fifth yeah uh, with... seven points off uh, Dean Holdsworth's Palermo yeah <laughs> <laughs> extraordinary <laughs> who are currently still top in the table although they did uh, they, they went down last weekend didn't they Palermo they were defeated Sidia B got back into action Verona these days who are managed by Fabio Grosso and count among their ranks Scotland's very own Liam Henderson yeah. who's been having a fascinating career Liam Henderson well yeah I mean Grosso took him with him from, from oh, Bari right. to, yeah. to Hellas Verona um, yeah he's uh, he's been doing pretty well there both playing in sort of defence midfield but yeah Verona lost the uh, it's a derby isn't it with Padova uh, last, last week they lost, oh, they? They lost 3-0 are they kind of more financially secure these days Gab do you know well, they had this. They had this guy, Marito um, Setti, who, who at first, when when they were up and with with Mandolini as their manager, and it mm. all looked like you know they were there. They had those shirts that were sponsored by his clothing line, is it? But it was like it wasn't Abercrombie. It was like an Frankie's, Abercrombie and Fitch Frankie knockoff, something like that. No, 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 no. It was no Franklin and Marshall. Okay. Ah, yeah, you're right. It's a university in the U.S. And uh-huh. then suddenly people started knocking off their logos and putting it on like, apparel. And it became insanely popular with the herd mentality that exists <laughs> among certain European countries. But yeah, this, this guy set these all sorts of dispute between him and the guy who's his financial backer. And it's just another ugly situation, right. needless situation with combination of bad people owning football clubs in Italy mm. and a lack of proper oversight coupled with a diabolically slow legal system. So there they are, fifth in City of B. And uh, it would be fascinating to see them come back up, especially if they were to do it in style. And trade places with Kiev. Possibly yeah. so. I mean, they're one of those teams that belong in City You know, people say like, oh, well, Leeds should be in the Premier League. Uh, yeah, Verona should be in City Arguably the only team from... Veneto, who should be. Right, and Frosinone shouldn't. We'll touch on that <laughs> a little bit later. We'll touch on that a little bit later. And Gabano, you have to, to leave us now, but James, you and I are about to go sailing into the modern-day situation in the top flight as we touch on the return of Syria this weekend and what awaits us in the coming days with a particularly exciting round of matches. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. City came back this weekend, James Horncastle. Mm-hmm. And a very interesting set of results that left things ever so tight in the race for fourth place. Not so much above them, where you've got Juve nine points clear of second place. Napoli, who themselves are seven points clear of Inter. But below them, five teams, each one point apart. Milan, Roma, Lazio, Atalanta and Sampdoria, who were involved in, would you say, the game of the weekend at the Frankie? It had everything, James, um, in that uh, Fiorentina were on top uh, and and went down to 10 men. Um, and uh, and yet um, they somehow contrived to, to get a point in a game when their new signing, 
debutant Luis Muriel scored two original Ronaldo-esque goals, which mm. is, of course, someone who he actually looks like. Uh, if you, if you, you know, put, do you think? Well, if you put their kind of Panini stickers at an early uh-huh. a, a early time in their careers together, they th- there is a resemblance there. Certainly he likes to think there is. Right. And to be honest, his goals, particularly his second... A Ronaldo-esque run, definitely. Yes. Phenomenal run mm. for, for the second. So you had goal Delex, two of those. You yep. had goal from Quagliarella, a brilliant... Uh, you know, two guys tight on him, slinging him to the ground, but he still gets the shot off and scores for how many matches in a row is that now? Ten straight, James. He's wow. just one away from Gabriel Batistuta's all-time record, uh, which was established in 94-95. Mm. I think they play Udinese, his former team, at the weekend. So we'll have wow. to see if big Fabio can actually match um, the uh, the record then. Well, Sam, still very much then in the picture uh, for that final Champions League place. Uh, this weekend, some really important games Lazio, who are currently in sixth place, but only two points off the top four, will be hosting Juventus. Yes, uh, I don't think they have much of a chance in that. Really? Um, well, Lazio are on a real slump at the moment. Uh, only two wins in their last nine. Mm. Um, and um, while Sergei Milinkovic-Savic showed signs of life uh, at the end of the calendar year, they need more, really. Um, and uh, I think they're real at risk because if you look at uh, the form that Roma and Atalanta are in and they play this weekend in Bergamo, I think that, for me, is the biggest game of, of match day 21. Well, there's an interesting argument to be made then because the team that beat Lazio last weekend, Napoli, and beat them despite being without four absolute cast-iron starters in mm-hmm. Alan, Hamzic, Insigne and Koulibaly were, of course, uh, uh, Carlo Ancelotti's uh, Napoli, and, and a fine win for them. They are going to be travelling to Milan, where Milan themselves coming off a 2-0 win away at Genoa mm-hmm. Monday afternoon. <laughs> yes. Why were they playing on Monday afternoon? OK, for two reasons. I mean, um, you look at the history between these two clubs. You were there, James, when yeah. uh, a Spagnolo ultra was, was killed. Um, so it's always been uh, a tense affair, this one. But also, it was just classic politicking point scoring by the interior minister Matteo Salvini um, a reaction to the the violence that happened but before the Inter-Napoli game before right. Christmas um, so that's why you ended up having this game Monday three o'clock in a city as general manager Cesare Pandetti said has all kinds of problems at the moment in terms of congestion because of the the Morandi Bridge disaster. You know, people at work, so they couldn't come and see the game. And Genoa Ultra is actually striking anyway because of this decision. So, yeah, Prandelli, I think, quite rightly made the case that his side felt penalised mm. um, by it. But huge result for Milan. So what those people missed who, who didn't make it to the game was it was a big victory and a, and a fantastic performance by a player everyone's getting very excited about. So the background to this is the fact that Milan, who are losing Higuain, at least on loan to, to Chelsea are replacing him with the guy who's lit up the first half of Genoa's season. So Higuain wasn't playing because he's on his way to Chelsea, and Genoa didn't field the player who they're now sending to Milan, Piontek. Because he was suspended. Because he, Oh, he was suspended anyway. Okay, yeah. perfect. So without those two, star of the show was the new arrival from Brazil, Paqueta. Highlight reel sort of stuff where he um, he hit the post with a wonderful yeah. sumptuous volley. But I think the one piece of skill that everyone got really excited about was his uh, bicicletta, where he uh, which he, is not a bicycle kick. No, he was taking on uh, Bessa. I, I the, want to call it a rainbow flick. Exactly, that's right. I think what it, uh, most people would would call it in English. But yeah, put the ball between his heels and then flicked it over Bessa. 
ran past him, uh, then gave the ball away back to Besser, and right. Besser almost scored. <laughs> so, <laughs> we saw by the by. <laughs> Milan won anyway, 2-0, and that sets up a really interesting clash uh, with Napoli this weekend. Sorry. Well, James, do you know what uh, Milan's record this season without Higuain is? Is it not good? They've played five. They're unbeaten in Ooh. five. They've won three. They've drawn two. They're obviously better off without him. And uh, yeah, Piontek is expected to make his debut against Napoli, which is also what Pato did. I think it's also Higuain. I think he made his really? uh, Milan debut against uh, against Napoli as well. So, so it's a huge game, that. And, and there's a, a fascinating Polish duel mm. uh, in prospect yeah. because on one hand, Piontek, who's had that incredible start to the season at Genoa, against Napoli's Polish striker, Eric Milic. Milic. Yeah. Who's, who himself found the net in, in fine fashion. Yeah, and, and finds the net in, in different ways. He's been scoring free kicks for them uh, recently, which I, I must admit, I didn't think it was a skill he had in his locker, but um, he's coming up really big with uh, with these uh, set pieces. And um, yeah, these two guys, very much the future of that Polish national team once Robert Lewandowski winds down. So mm. it should be a really interesting game, although Napoli, uh, as you mentioned, James, super impressive. I think just to underline the job that Ancelotti is doing, they've only had more points at this stage of the season on two occasions. Uh, one was last year under mm-hmm. Marito Sarri, and the other time was when Napoli defended their first title in 87-88 with Maradona in the team. So... He keeps defying expectation, Carlo. All right. It was a brilliant match uh, earlier on in the season between these two teams. The uh, the other game that you're saying is, is, is going to out-spectacle even that is Atalanta-Roma. And, and you're probably right. Atalanta coming into this incredible form, fresh from a 5-0 win <laughs> at Frosinone with four goals scored by one player. Yeah, Duvan Zapata, who is the hottest striker in the league um, so far. Since the start of December, James, only two teams have scored more goals than Duvan Zapata. On his own? On his own. <laughs> wow. Um, he scored 14 in 10. Um, and he scored the perfect poker, if you like, against Frosinone. Two headers and then scored goals with his left and his right foot mm. as well. So this game is between the two sides who who are vying for fourth place. Only two points between them. Yeah. And and Roma, um, who been linked with... Uh, a, a Atalanta centre-back, Gianluca Mancini, who scored in that 5-0 win, not from a set-piece either, just goes to show that you know these uh, Atalanta centre-backs get forward even in open play and score goals. He scored more goals as a defender than any other defender in Europe's top five leagues this season, Gianluca really? Mancini. But uh, he is one of the um, very promising young Italian players. You look at that Roman midfield, you look at Zaniolo's performance against Torino, he is justifiably getting a lot of people excited because mm. it wasn't only his goal, his all-round play. Roma fans are beginning to you know, really enjoy. Roma with a win over Torino, Atalanta with a victory over Frosinone. And what are they doing in Serie A, Frosinone? <laughs> the brilliant thing about that is this is the Aurelio De Laurentiis interview that right. um, Rory the president Smith. gave to Rory Smith. Yeah. And it was in December. Okay. Okay. So before Liverpool played Napoli at Anfield, and uh, it came out <laughs> just after this five-nil defeat that Frosinone had, I think it's entirely fair. And right. uh, De Laurentiis has been banging this drum for some time that Serie A needs to go back to being an eighteen-team league because right. we keep seeing the likes of Benevento, Frosinone just set records for low point scoring. A couple of bits of transfer news: uh, Is Alan going to go to Paris Saint-Germain for hundred million from Napoli? Well, they haven't received an offer yet, but certainly um, PSG have spoken to Alan's people. And I think Napoli are, are beginning to prepare for his departure, maybe not in January, but in the summer, because um, 
They're in talks with Pablo Fornals, the Villarreal midfielder, and obviously I think they're ahead of everyone when it comes to trying to lure Nicolo Barella away from Cagliari as well. So mm. um, I think, yeah, Alan, this might be his final season in Naples. OK, and then the one move that everyone's been expecting, Kevin Prince-Boating turning up at Barcelona from Sassuolo. Ah, you can mock, James. You can mock. But I think this is also reflective no, of No, it might work really well. He's been doing great. For a bit. It just came completely out of the blue, I think, for everybody now. Yeah, I mean, they've been in talks for, I think, a month uh, okay. now. But, I mean, it's been kept pretty hush-hush. Right. Um, also, I mean, Sassuolo, who, I have to remember, I mean, this is quite an incredible thing for them. You know, this is a team that has only been in Serie A for three or four years, um, does not have a huge profile. And Barcelona is coming to sign one of their players. You also look at the strategy that has helped Sassuolo get to where they are now. It's been sort of forging links with Juventus and Roma to sort of help develop their players. I think they're now going to this next step, which is to forge links with international clubs of Barcelona's profile. You look at the player that they've got at the back, Marlon, who came from Barca. I think they're they're, they're going to try and bring other young Barcelona players to, with the, with a view to developing them. I think it's it's testament of how kind of smart Sassuolo are. Really, it's just nice. a shame that Balotelli is not going to be replacing Boateng because that would have been magic. Absolutely. Okay, uh, super. Well, look forward to further developments. Uh, Golazzo will return next Wednesday with Gabriele Marcotti and James Horncastle. And hey, listener, I hope you as well. Have yourselves a great week in the meantime. And for now, from all of us here, it's Arrivederci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. <laughs>